Last week, I used the metaphor of setting the table. I'm going to reset the table for you this morning so that you recall everything that's on the table, and then we're going to eat. After set the table, we're going to eat, and we'll begin by looking at the first commandment in just a moment. Set the table for our summer series on the Ten Words. They're not called the Ten Commandments in the Bible. They're called the Ten Words. The Hebrew expression literally means ten words. And we're calling this series, This is the Love of God. You've just heard me pray that. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. That's the thinking behind it. This is the love of God, living and loving the Ten Commandments. We carefully placed three truths on the table that allowed us to set the context within uh, the Bible's great and glorious timeline. You know that that's part of my DNA. Where are we? What's the context? How do we understand where we are, given the the great storyline of the Bible? These were the three truths. If you don't mind me just kind of tweaking the salad fork and moving the plate over here a little bit. The first one was that the law is holy and righteous and good. So we, we kind of pushed away this idea that the law is lousy, that it's not for new covenant believers. Nuh-uh. The law is holy, righteous, and good. So we have to ask, ask ourselves the question, if that's the case, how then does it work for those of us who are on this line on the other side of the cross? We're not Old Testament believers. How does that work? And I explain that, and we'll continue to do that throughout this series, if the Lord is willing. Secondly, the law was never meant to save. We, we got that right out of the way as well. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law, ever. Past, present, future. Nobody has been able to keep the law except one person. And he didn't need to be saved but he gave his life so that you and I could be saved. So the second truth is that the law was never meant to save, but instead it was to show our sin and lead us to Christ. That's the function for new covenant believers. That's the function of the law, which is holy, righteous, and good. It is to expose our sin. One pastor that I heard recently describes the law as a spiritual x-ray machine under which you slide and then it exposes you. <gasps> All that's going on inside of me and then drives us to Christ. You can't preach the gospel without preaching the law. The gospel doesn't make any sense unless you know the need that you have for the gospel. Enter the law. Does that make sense? Good. The third truth. The law must be read and applied through Jesus. Straightforward, but a massively important hermeneutical point. Hermeneutical is the the art of interpreting the Bible. The law must be read and applied through Jesus. And I, I had a sidebar, which I'll come back to a little bit later. And it's that truth, that third truth in summary, it's that truth that helps us answer the, the, the cynicism of pundits of Christianity who say, oh, you people who condemn homosexuality because in the Old Testament it says, oh, you people who do this, and yet it doesn't seem to me to be a problem to you for you eating shellfish or wearing polyester, two things that the Old Testament also says under certain conditions at a given time you should not do. When you translate that through the Jesus lens, things fall into place and you begin to understand more correctly, if you please, how to answer those questions. So we use the words from J.I. Packer, 
Dear brother in the Lord is not with the Lord. He describes for the New Covenant believer the Ten Commandments as a gratitude program. I like that. A gratitude program or a prescription for honoring, pleasing, glorifying God. Or a third uh, metaphor, a highway to the holy joy of obedience. So you, wanna, you want something to get your hands right on with regard to how do the Ten Commandments work in my life today? You can think of them as a gratitude program. I've been delivered. And so now obedience is a way of expressing my gratitude to what it is that God has done for me in Christ. It's also a prescription for honoring, pleasing, and glorifying God, or if you want to think about it another way, a highway to the holy joy of obedience. Obeying God's commands for the new covenant believer ought to bring joy rather than anxious nail-biting and all other kinds of things that just make you feel icky because you didn't keep the commandments this day. We have one who has kept them, and in him, God looks at us as having kept them as well. So we're, we're free. We, we are radically free. Okay? Now let's eat. Now let's eat. Today we begin with the first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Very simple line. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. First and greatest, how do I know that? Well, I know that because Jesus said it was. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. Jesus is asked the question, what's the first and greatest? And bam, he rolls it out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, and by the way, the second is really close to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Those two. In other words, if you spend your entire life striving to obey those two commandments, you basically are striving after the completion of the book, which he has done in Christ. And though, so us in him are free, again, to go and do that. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. I'm going to introduce to you a format that we're going to use for the Ten Commandments. And there's going to be two questions each week, very simply. What does this commandment require, and what does this commandment forbid? Both and. Okay, the, the great church fathers, all the way up to the Reformation, always read the Ten Commandments as being not the complete explanation of the moral will of God, but a sufficient get-at-it kind of thing and always reflective that each commandment is much deeper than we understand it to be, and it allows certain things and forbids certain things, and that's what we want to look at. So with the first commandment this morning, you shall have no other gods before me, we're going to ask two questions. What is required of me and what is forbidden by this commandment, okay? A couple of preliminaries before we take up those two questions, okay? A couple, a couple of preliminaries and they're contextual preliminaries. I want to remind you that the Ten Commandments themselves are, or this commandment specifically, is a, it has a creation context. You might say, wait a minute, Genesis 1 and 2 is showing up here right now? Let me show you how I get that, just ever so briefly, so we can continue to move along. There's a creation context, namely, Genesis 1 and 2 and this might startle some of you, Genesis 1 and 2 has more of an apologetic angle than we often think. What do I mean by that? What do I mean is that to the first readers of Genesis 1 and 2, what you have here is an ex explanation of the one God that exists. Now understand, God's people, the ancient Near Eastern people, are, are in the midst of a pantheon of gods. 
Genesis 1 and 2 shows up in the midst of that pantheon, and in, and in the beginning, God created. Not a series of gods, not a hierarchy of gods, one God. And I'm going to show you other places in the Old Testament where the people of Israel clearly understood that the Lord is one. So it has a creation context. It's an apologetic context. By saying, by God saying, you will have no other gods before me, declares that he is one and he's the only God. And in truth, the false gods really don't even exist. Watch how Paul handles that, and I'll show you that in just a, in just a second. Second context is a covenant context. This is a little bit of a duh, because we're talking about a binding stipulation that God puts on his people. So there's a, there's a creation context, but there's also a covenant context. Think of it as a contract, and there's a sovereign uh, who's over that contract and who provides stipulations that are required for blessing. And so you have God declaring, you shall have no other gods before me. There's not a bargaining here. There's not a brokering here. This is a sovereign Lord who's detailing, who's outlining the stipulations of this covenant, of this contract, which you will obey if you want his blessings. Remember I said to you last week, I am, you shall. Remember we did that? I am, you shall. And the order is critical. It's the gospel in a nutshell I, I, I shared. The first four words outline our duties to God. The first four commandments outline our duties to God. The last six are duties to other image bearers, other human beings, men and women created in the image of, of our God as part of the covenant that he's explaining to us. Any sin, any violation of that contract, think of your mortgage. You've signed, many of you in the room have signed mortgages. That's a contract. And it's, it's not a give and take contract. Once it's signed, you have a lord over you. You don't own your house. You own the mortgage. And the people who hold that mortgage own the house. So you do what they tell you to do. You make a payment every month. And if you don't do that, they come and get it. Similarly here, you violate the stipulations of the covenant, there's going to be a consequence for that. Well, so, so too here, and particularly this first commandment. Any sin, any violation of the contract is disloyalty to God. So any violation of any other contract is a violation of the first. This is one of the reasons why the first commandment is as important as it is. You break any other commandment, you automatically also break the first commandment. Because any sin is a breaking of the contract and a sign of disloyalty to the sovereign, if you please. You're going to see this in the organic nature of all Ten Commandments. It's, it's really, it, it, I won't take the time to unpack it all right now, but to break one of those commandments, it could be argued is to break all ten of them. But certainly, to break any other commandment is also to break the first one. Or to say it another way, as one writer does, the first commandment forbids all sin. To state it as simply as possible. Okay? So, some preliminary contextual things. Creation, covenant context. Okay, now, what does the first commandment require? Let's take up that question. 
with the remaining time that we have. What does the first commandment require? The first commandment, I think you can see quite straightforwardly, requires then undivided allegiance, undivided worship. This is what the first requirement of the first commandment is. You will have no other gods before me. That language before me is a little tricky. What is exactly meant by before me? You'll have no other gods have a greater priority than mine, or you'll have no other gods literally before my face, because that's what the Hebrew literally is. You'll have no other gods before my face. So there's, there's a little bit of this God saying, you will not bring anybody else into my house, which is also kind of the same way of saying, you'll have no one over me. You have no other priority. Think of it like this. And this is a gut punch for me when I saw this illustration. I almost didn't include it because it was just so much of a gut punch because I just don't even like thinking about it. But think about the idea of me, of me cheating on my wife and coming into my wife and saying, hey, I've got a new friend here. She's going to be part of our lives. I'm going to start splitting my life between you and her. Kind of makes you, doesn't it? So it should. This is the kind of thing we're talking about, undivided allegiance. When, When I proposed to my wife, I broke the hearts of nearly 4 billion women on the planet. Why are they laughing? I like to say that every once in a while. I may, have, I may have broken the heart of one other person, and I don't even know where she is now. Anyway, I digress, and my, my wife's going to want to know who that person is at the end of the day. Strike that, please. Think of, think of the pain. Some of you have experienced this firsthand, and I, at a secondhand level, being an adult child of divorced parents, think of the pain if your spouse were to have another lover. You would not tolerate it. You would realize that there's something wrong with that contract. This is what God's saying here right now. I will brook no other lover. I am your God. We are wedded. In its original context, the people of God were consistently enticed to false gods, false lovers. So much so that there's a book in the Old Testament dedicated entirely to that metaphor. The Old Testament prophet Hosea was called by God to do extraordinarily difficult things. Namely, go take for yourself a wife who's a prostitute to make a live, living illustration to my people that they have gone, pardon my language, a whoring after other gods. From Genesis 1, as I've already pointed out to you, to 2 Kings, basically the entire length of the Old Testament narrative is about God pursuing a people who are, again, pardon my language, jumping in and out of bed with a variety of lovers. 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. This occurred, the fall of Israel, now at the hands of Samaria, 722, 721 B.C. Israel has already fallen in the north and now the south, Judah, 
at the hands of Assyria. This occurred, why? Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the custom of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. They were making offerings in the high places as the nations whom the Lord carried them away before them did. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. What did they do? They served idols, of which God had to say to them, you shall not do this. See, there's a whisper of the first commandment in 2 Kings chapter 17. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You could easily argue that one of the main streams throughout all of the Old Testament is Israel's waywardness and not obeying the first commandment. Highlighted back in Exodus, highlighted in chapter 32, one of, the, one of the Mount Rushmore chapters in the Bible, Exodus 32, because it's the golden calf episode. And in verse 4 of Exodus 32, <laughs> the leaders of God's people, behold, these are your gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Can you, I can't even fathom it. Being brought out of the iron smelting furnace that is Egypt Moses is up on the mount getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord. They're growing impatient at the foot of the mountain. They start gathering all the gold jewelry. They throw it all in. Boom, up, supposedly up, pops a golden calf. And the leaders point to the golden calf and say to the people of God who've experienced the deliverance from Egypt and said, behold, this is your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. I have a hard time even conceiving of it. And there's what they did. Now, as soon as those words come out of my mouth, I hear a full break in my brain because the Spirit of God says to me, well, pal, uh, you've done stuff just like that. And so haven't pretty much all of your hearers. Can you believe they did that? One of the truths that we learn from this episode that I just read for you is that the first word, the first commandment, goes to the heart. Let's, let's be clear with this right now. That the commandments are going to go to the heart. It's internal, more than it's external. Not that it excludes the external, but it's internal. It's not merely changed behavior. The law can change behavior. Only the gospel can change your heart. If I like to drive my car down this street 50 miles an hour through a school zone, and I get pulled over by an officer, and he writes me a speeding ticket for $200, and I get points on my insurance, that's going to alter my behavior. 
I'm not going to go down this street through a school zone very much anymore at 50 miles an hour. The law can alter your behavior. I alter uh, being the law here, school side, being the law, a role I don't like playing, I regularly alter the behavior of these children that get sent to my office. He sighs. The law will change behavior. It will not change your heart. Because the kid that I had to lower the law on, guess what? He's in my office again next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. The law, as we're understanding it, is internal. It reveals why we do things, and it calls us to transformation. God, the one God, we see in Exodus 20, verse 5, as you heard Nader read, God, the one God, is a jealous God. And he will not tolerate a divided allegiances. He won't tolerate lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. Lukewarmness is a violation of the first commandment. He will not tolerate divided allegiances. He won't tolerate lukewarmness. He won't tolerate other lovers. How much more so God is going to say to me, nah, if, if my wife with every ounce of energy that little body of hers possesses will be up in my face saying, nah, nah. How much more so a perfectly holy and loving God? Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a reference that I made a little bit earlier with regard to how this was to shape the people of God over the years. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, this is what the parents were supposed to teach the children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Of everything that they needed to be taught, one of the first things that comes out of their mouth is that the Lord our God is one. So child, so son of mine, when you're out in the neighborhood and when you're going to your schools and so on and so forth and everybody is telling you these are gods, you know in your heart of hearts there is only one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them all diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and on the frontlets between your eyes. You've seen the pictures of the Jews at the Wailing Wall, the little black boxes, the phylacteries. And in that little black box are the words of Torah, literally taking this word to heart. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here's how Paul says it. Paul interprets it for us. Paul puts our Bible together for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, talking about food being offered to idols. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Now, Paul the Jew, what's in his background now? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So Paul, steeped in this tradition, understands that there's only one God. So if you're talking about idols, Paul knows at the end of the day, existentially speaking, these idols do not exist because there is only one God. 
we know, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Did you get that? We exist through God the Son, for God the Father. Let me ask you this question. I doubt very seriously any of you have totem poles in your home. I doubt very seriously any of you have asherim on the mantle of your fireplaces. I doubt very seriously you have any carved images or anything that even resembles a golden calf at home. But, I don't doubt for a minute, because I know you're a lot like me along these lines, that there are 21st century versions of these idols that we do have. So which one of these 21st century gods compete for our allegiance, for our love? Before we answer that in closing, I want to talk to you briefly about what this commandment, what the first commandment forbids. It's much shorter as we wind down here. The first word then, it seems to me, follows right along, forbids any both-and mindset. The first commandment forbids a both-and mindset. Here's what I mean by that. God and fill in the blank. If there's anything in the blank, we are violating the first commandment. Every once in a while, I'll take a break when I'm working at home. I'll take a break between noon and 12.30. And I despise television, but occasionally I do turn it on. And part of the reason why I turn it on is to do, literally, is to do research. I, I want to know what people are watching so that when I bash television in the pulpit, I know what I'm bashing. And there's this entire channel dedicated to old game shows. 847,000 channels. Well, you've got to think of everything, right? There's this old game show channel. And I'll get mesmerized by it because I can remember watching it when I was a boy. So here's Gene Rayburn with those nasty suits and these really wide ties playing the match game. Somebody wins and they get to go up and play for 1000 2500 or $5,000. I should not know that, Vinny. I should not know that. But here's, here's Susie ready to play for $5,000. The tile slides over, God and blank. And she gets to pick three celebrities to help her fill in the blank. Now, you can mess up the match game show and say, sorry, I'm a Christian, there's nothing in that blank. What would you say? God and blank. The first commandment erases the blank. You shall have no other gods before me. So if you're inclined to say something, this is the first thing that comes to my mind, just because of its popularity. God and country. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. 
And I know how close to the bone that gets. He will brook no other lovers. Now, it, it doesn't mean that you can't have a certain pride or a certain love for your homeland. I'm not saying that. But if it is God and country, we have a problem. And God wants to help you with that. If it's God in anything else, if it's God in money, if it's God in a beautiful wife, if it's God in a boat, if it's God and retirement, if it's God and anything, the first commandment strikes at it and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. It's, it's, it's not easy. This is what the first commandment forbids. It forbids any competition at all for our allegiance, our obedience, our affection, our love. The temp Watch this now. The temptation is not so much to replace God as it is to diminish him. I'm not suggesting that whatever you put in that blank entirely eradicates God. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that anything else in the blank diminishes God. Doesn't give him the rightful position that he deserves over his creation. It's what I, it's what I called this week, it's perverted math. It's the devil's arithmetic. Subtraction by addition. Add to God and you subtract from him. James 1.8 calls it double-mindedness, literally being in two minds. You've got a foot here and a foot here, and this is what I like it. I like my comfortable lifestyle, and I got a little bit of God too. I go to church every week, but don't mess with my lifestyle. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, God directly addresses Satan, who comes with a power play. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The temptation of power, the temptation of privilege, all of this, all of this can be yours, all of this, all of this can be yours. Just give me what I want and no one will get hurt. And Jesus says, be gone, because that will divide my heart. Power, privilege, divides your heart. Here's one other. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, God says, you cannot serve God and money. Mm -hmm. The temptation of money, of possessions. Not so much the temptation of money. I doubt anybody in this room would sit here and say, money is a God for me. But the things that money provides now begins to get a little bit more dicey. And God says, through Christ, you cannot serve God and money. I make this point regularly when I talk about money. Money is not neutral. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard a lot of people, including pastors, say that money is neutral. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. That does not reckon with Matthew 6.24. Jesus said money is a God, and a God is not neutral. That, that dollar bill in your pocket wants you. 
It is actively pursuing you. It desires for you to make decisions that would deny the existence of God so that you get security and you get comfort and you get what you want through the purchasing power that that dollar gives to you. It's a real temptation. My wife and I talk about it all the time. I readily confess to you that I'm in a much better mood when I know my bills are paid. But if, if I'm tight in a month and I start doing this, she knows. She knows. And we talk about it, and all of a sudden I realize, huh, I'm not trusting God because I don't have enough money. Let's wrap it up. I asked just a second ago what 21st century gods compete for your allegiance, for your love. I want to give you four diagnostic questions. Just, I'll give you the questions. You're going to hear them again. We'll move on. Okay, we'll wrap this thing up. They're not original with me. I'm, I'm taking them from another writer who took them from John Kelvin. Four diagnostic questions that will help us tear down our idols because in Deuteronomy 12, that's what God tells his people to do. Tear them down. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3, kill it. Put to death. Paul's serious. Put to death that which wars against your soul. Question number one, whom do you praise? Whom do you praise? It's all well and good. I praised my daughter a number of times this week. That's not what he's talking about. It's fine to praise family and friends, job well done, sure. But who gets your highest praise? Do you praise God more than you praise your children? Question number two, whom do you trust? Now, this is, a, this is a tough one. We won't take all the time to unpack it. But do you trust the means that God provides or do you trust the end of that provision at the end of the day? Whom do you trust? And I just gave you an example of where I don't trust God. If money gets tight, my trust of God gets, gets challenged. Question number three. Whom do you call on for answers, for purpose? for joy. And again, means and ends. If I've got an ache, I'm going to call a doctor. Nothing wrong with that. Is that where my hope is ultimately going to lie? Question number four. Whom do you praise? Whom do you trust? Whom do you call on for answers, purpose, and joy? Question four. Whom do you thank? Question four. Whom do you thank? Again, Thanking your neighbor for helping you cut the grass. Thanking your pharmacist for helping you get the prescriptions that you need. All oh, that's really good. Please don't hear me say that. You shouldn't say thank you to somebody else. I'll say thank you to half a dozen of you today by the end, by the end of the day. In order to properly answer these questions, in order to live and love the first commandment, we must turn to Jesus. And you're going to hear a lot of this going forward. Jesus is described by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 as the one mediator between God and man. Hebrews 1, 3, 
Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The point being, if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. And to obey the first commandment is to worship Jesus Christ because he is God. Jesus himself said this, John chapter 14 and verse 7. If you'd known me, he said to his disciples, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him because you've seen me. The law must be read through the Jesus lens. Jesus is a focus of our worship, and he's the one to whom we turn. He's the one that we trust in. He's the one we call on. He's the one we thank. And God the Father would have it no other way. It's one of the reasons why he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the first meal. Table's been set. We've just ate the first meal. Eaten. My wife's going to correct me on that. Eaten the first meal. I'm going to take a break. It's going to give you a little time to think about that, to chew on it a little bit. Get all of those good ingredients out of it before we come back and take up the second commandment, which is very much like the first one. You'll have no carved images, no idols, which we just spoke about a little bit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, and I pray that it is, in fact, nourishing. I pray that uh, it... It does that for which it has been sent. And it takes root, Father, and brings about a glorious harvest. Father, where this x-ray has exposed us internally, and perhaps we're the only ones that know it, but you do too, I pray that we would be quick to run in the name of Jesus to your throne asking for mercy and to know that we find it there. You are a jealous God, but you're not a stingy God. So pour out, pour out your love upon us as we confess our sin to you, that we might walk with you and that we would know we would take no other lovers. That you alone, even as the Psalmist 116 said this morning, I love you, Lord. May we be able to say that unashamedly, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.